Things change from one generation to the next. Attitudes, politics, technology, even lifestyles. But when it comes to business, there's one thing every generation has in common. The pursuit of excellence. Welcome to Generation Excellence. A conversation with next-gen leaders of family businesses who are working to preserve the past and innovate the future. And now, here's the host of Generation Excellence and a third-generation business owner himself, Jamie Michelson. Jamie? One of the joys of doing this podcast is getting to meet and talk to inspiring leaders. Jason Edelston represents second-generation leadership of Sterling Oil and Sterling Services, businesses his parents started and built with insights on the future. And by my take, that visionary nature has become woven into the organization. I was captivated listening to Jason, and in our conversation, time flew by. There are so many interesting things Jason is involved in. I will leave it to him to tell those stories. Please enjoy Jason Edelston on this latest episode of Generation Excellence. Hello, Jason Edelston of VP Operations Sterling Oil and Sterling Services under the Sterling Companies. I, I thank you so much for joining the Generation Excellence podcast today. Um, and we'll talk about, usually I ask where I'm finding you, but we'll talk about where you are and the hat you're wearing as we get into this a little bit. But uh, again, well, welcome. How are you? Jamie, thank you very much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to be on your podcast today. So you are... Um, you know, yet another person who I believe kind of their um, their age, their birth or whatever sort of lines up closely to the founding of a business, I roughly. So, you know, you're, it looks like your parents started this company. Tell, tell me about kind of what led them to start the business that, that they, they have and that you're now deeply in and, and, uh, and we'll go from there. Um, my father was born and raised in Birmingham, England, um, back in the 40s when it was a very big car automotive based town. Growing up in England through high school and college, whatever it was called in England at the time, realized he was looking for something bigger and better. And over some beers after a rugby game with friends, decided to come to this country. And he came to this country with a job working one week a month in Pittsburgh area where he met my mother and romanced and convinced my mother to marry him and move to England. They lived there several years till my mother decided, hey, if this marriage is ever going to work out, we need to move back to the States. Because in the, in the early 70s in Europe, it was not the same amenities that Americans were accustomed to. They decided to move back to the States and end up settling in Detroit, Michigan, okay. where my father took a job. And within six months of taking that job, the job went under. He took the smartest, oldest guy that he was working with and had an idea a niche that he think existed in which he could basically buy factory fill oil products and sell them to major base companies, taking advantage of basically the exchange rate of what it would cost in Canada, bringing it to this country and selling it into Michigan. He borrowed $10,000 from my grandfather on my <laughs> mother's side and the two of them together started Sterling Oil and Chemical Company back in 1976. Fantastic. And so I, so the the Canadian US connection was from the very beginnings. Uh and then, you know, as the the business evolved, um you know, what 
I've asked a lot of people this, that, you know, grow up around a business that they end up in at some point in their career that's family. What's your earliest memory of the business the business is? My earliest memory uh, would be sitting at the dinner table, basically Mm -hmm. enjoying dinner with my brother and my parents and my parents basically talking about the workday, talking about what went on, their employees, good things, bad things. I have a vivid memory of going with my father to Kitchen, Ontario, in Canada. And he asked me to squeeze under a gate, go in the yard, and count all the axles and all the different trailers <laughs> that this company had. And what I was led to believe and now know was I was undertaking industrial espionage for my father and collecting research information so he could understand what his competitors' capabilities were when he was bidding on contracts against them at the current time. I always knew as being kind of the eldest son of the business that by seeing all the blood, sweat, and tears that my parents put into the company to provide my brother and myself with a lifestyle that they did not have growing up themselves, that I felt it was somewhat of a responsibility as being the eldest child to get into the family business and to be able to take it, um, continue it, take it to the next level if I could, but continue that kind of family tradition on. So many people have been on this podcast are either of two paths. They were not at all going to be involved in that business, but ended up in it because otherwise why would I be talking to them or, you know, kind of had that, that mentality, that path. But did you, did you kind of do schooling and go right into this business or did you kind of get some grounding and do some other things first before joining, uh, you know, Sterling Oil and the chemical company? So growing up in Michigan, I went to Cranbrook. Um, you know, kind of an upscale private school um, in which I was lucky enough through sports and my academics to get into Wharton School Business University of Pennsylvania. And while I was there, I majored in entrepreneurial management and marketing. Um, I I think just growing up in a family-run business and being your own boss and and things like that's something that really appealed to me. But I also looked at it at the standpoint of I didn't think I would be doing my family disservice, I thought, if I got in the business right away. Mm-hmm. I thought that it was best if I went somewhere else, work for a variety of different companies, work for a variety of different bosses to really understand more things about leadership style, how corporations are run, and really get a lot of learnings from working in other different organizations that I could cherry pick what I thought was the best and bring back a knowledge base and a lot of skill sets in my family business so I could really learn the family business and hit the ground running instead of being just that son that everything was given to where I had sure. to work for everything I got. You've, you've, you've embodied a little bit of what this podcast is trying to educate others who are in those seats or have those options. Uh, you know, besides your parents then, who's kind of been a mentor to you along your career path? And you're still early in that career path. Um, you know, I, I, I think I definitely had some great professors in college. Um, some of which I stayed in contact for years after school. Um, I also had some, you know, bosses within New York City where I lived for 10 years after college um, that really gave me great insight where I would really spend additional time with them and asking them questions about why they would make certain decisions and what they would weigh and make weigh in making decisions with the company and, and so forth of that magnitude. I think in moving back and getting in the industry I was, because I never worked in the oil and gas industry when I lived in New York, everything was really marketing, internet-based, catalog-based, and sports. I really looked to other family businesses that I knew when I moved back here, friends 
and looking at the key individuals of their businesses and trying to befriend those individuals and use them as mentors to really understand as much as I could about oil and gas. Our family businesses don't have too much middle management. It's really the owners are, are in the business and operating and managing on a day-to-day -day basis. So I wanted to really expose myself to other man managers in the oil and gas business here in the Michigan area to really understand the business more and understand how they made decisions for those companies they work for. So talk about it. And you've been back involved with the family business for how many years now? So I moved back in June of 2006, directly into the business. Okay. So we are now looking at 16 years. 16 years. And so, you know, a, a decade ago, you this this business got into things like solar and you've done things in broader international markets like so are those things that that you were spearheading are those things that were already kind of rolling to some degree like you know as we talk about kind of uh you know a business that's in a certain way founding and then ways you're trying to make your mark if, on on the operation sure one great example i think you mentioned solar it's kind of a funny story because this was back when DT, the state of Michigan had a mandate for a certain amount of solar energy and DT energy put together a fund. And I basically went to my parents and said, Hey, we can get a solar array installed at our warehouse. That'll cut down on our bills. And basically the government and DT energy would pay for it. And they wouldn't mm -hmm. believe me. So literally I had to go through a month of basically showing them all the documentation, having them have conversations. And finally they realized it was a good move. And we just got in right after the timeline. But a really great example would be is that we work not only in oil and gas, but also in chemicals. And when I joined the family business, uh, we had a very large corporate conglomerate um, who dealt with de-icing fluid for the airline industry. Hmm. And we basically took in the raw materials, we blended the product, and we transported it to just DTW for Delta Airlines. While that is a significant 80 to 90% chunk of what goes on at DTW, I looked at D that was just wing de-icer. I went to the airport, met the Delta guys, we became good friends, and they took me around the airport, and I looked at every single thing around the airport, every single fluid around the airport, winter wow. wild, every single different company that was bringing the fluid in, and I went after every single one of those other contracts. But now we just don't do wing de-icer. We do anti-de-icer. We do de-icer for runways. We do de-icer for gates. We do de-icer for taxiways. Every single winter fluid that goes through DTW Sterling basically has a hand in touching that because I forged the relationships at that airport where they know that our company is going to give them a high level of service. It doesn't matter if it snows an inch or two feet, that we will do whatever it takes to get them their fluid when they need before, during, or after the storm so that the airport or any of the companies at the airport don't run out of those fluids to continue operating the plants. So it's a wonderful example of, you know, organic growth and expanding an existing relationship, you know, take a foot in the door and, and expand. What's, uh, you know, what's in the, the, the company lore of something that you tried to do or experimented with, maybe as even before you, that's, that was, I don't want to call it a failure, but a learning lesson or that's, that's, there's, there's a good story behind. Sure. Uh, biodiesel. When I got into the business, one of the first things I looked at is like, what are the next frontiers that I believe for, okay. for our industry and our business? And one I looked was biodiesel. Um, and I made some connections. Uh, we met um, an individual who used to work for EQ, which is now U.S. Ecology, who put together a propylene glycol reclaim aspect. And he had great ideas for making a biodiesel facility. Um, 
And basically my parents were like, well, if you want to do this, we need to research it entirely. I went to conferences on biodiesel across the country. I went to different biodiesel facilities in Adrian, Michigan, up north, as well as down south. And after literally about 18 months of research and so many hours and so many meetings and so many trips, we all sat down as a family and we decided it wasn't a direction to go in. We felt that if the government ever took away the subsidies associated with actually the production of biodiesel, we thought that the business itself would fall flat. And we were very worried about because of biodiesel competing against food-based products as well, that if the food food prices continue to rise, which were trending over the last 20 years, that that would price some of the, the fuel stocks for the biodiesel out of reach of what needed to be able from a price point to sell into the marketplace. So it was a lot of research, a lot of time. It was something that I thought I was going to hang my hat on. And after all that time, realized it was not the right decision to kind of move forward with. So it's that business school training a little bit, which is, right, forget sunk costs. I mean, you put in all that time where it's just still able to make a decision to move on. So on that same sort of path, as a business generation, your, your parents are still involved in the business, correct? My parents are in their mid to late 70s and are still very involved in the strategic direction of the business, okay. less so kind of in the day-to-day aspects of what comes. So is is you is things like the biodiesel that have that potential impact on the business or that are that both strategic and significant? How just explain how how either how often you do board meetings or how you make those kind of decisions and 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 what process you all have as a business and a family. Sure. Basically, we look at there's the three of us: myself, my mother, and my father, who are actively involved in our family's businesses. I run the day-to-day operations and my mother and father were always a really great fit because their skills were a really great match for themselves. Mm, Anytime that we are looking to take on a new enterprise, a new product line, or have a large strategic direction, we will have a meeting. Board meeting, you know, when when you typically think of people getting around a board table in a meeting, ours is usually over lunch, over dinner, on a phone call. And basically we have a simple vote. And it's basically, there's three of us, mm. and it either goes 3-0 or 2-1. And basically, whatever we decide as a family, that's how we move forward. I don't always get my way. You know, if I really believe something strongly, then I usually try to appeal to either my mother and father to get them to vote with me. But we really only have votes that go 2-1 or 3-0. And usually when it's 2-1, that's when I lose out. And I think that my parents have always had a somewhat conservative approach sure. when it comes to our companies. And I think that has helped avoid disaster at certain points over the many years since 1976. But I also think sometimes we've not been able to take advantage of opportunities in the marketplace because we weren't willing to make the investment to do so because of the associated risk that we thought would come with it. Interesting. And then anything, you know, for those who like you are are um, involved in a business that is a business that is generational that is family, you know, or any anything you've kind of learned in that 15 years that you've been doing it, like kind of words of advice or words of wisdom, if you will. Um, I know for myself personally is that you know whether you're a small company, a medium-sized company, or a large company, you really when you're a newer generation coming in the business, you need to work very hard and dedicate yourself to earning the respect of your employees that work there. 
because a number of employees may have been there for a year, five, 10, 20, 30 plus years. And those are the employees that are making money for the family day in and day out. And if you can't earn the trust of those people because they see you working side by side as hard or if not harder than them, how do you expect them to do what it takes for your company to be successful? And I think that what I see sometimes in family businesses now, that when the next generation gets involved, it's by name and business card only, and they're not doing the work associated to really understand the business at every single level and to earn the actual employee's respect to be able to make that business successful when they're tasked in a leadership type position to make decisions on a day-to-day basis that reflect not only the family's livelihood, but all the employees' livelihoods as well. Well said. And and you know, that lead lead by example is key. How how would you describe or how would others just describe your leadership style? Um my leadership style is if there is a problem, I jump right in. I want to understand exactly what's going on, why it's going on, and I like to take employees' input about potential solutions of what they feel would solve the different issues. I like to kind of weigh all those opinions. I'll even go outside the organization and talk to consultants or experts to understand what best practices are from an injury standpoint. And I will make a quick decision. I will stick with the decision and for what I feel is the best of the company. You know, days, weeks later, if we decide that's not the best way to handle things, then we'll regroup. But I feel that a collective information about what's going on and in a quick decision that I feel confident in makes the other employees that are working for us feel that they respect the decision and they feel that's the way the company should go as well. Nice. Any any examples pop to mind of you know something new you've implemented through that that process that approach um you know one thing is that i would say with my family business especially when it comes to my parents is that um i think i've offered a lot when it comes to contractual negotiations with our companies we have long standing relationships with a number of companies between both our companies so when we sterling oil is a company that's trucking does logistics, and does procurement. Sterling Services is a company that has a bulk liquid terminal in Hamtramck, Michigan, in which we store, blend, throughput, and transload petroleum and chemical-based products. Sterling Services is the one who really has most of the clients. And what I've done and structured a lot of those renewals of those contracts is put in different clauses or amendments to give Sterling Oil the first right refusal of the trucking loans. This way, I'm locking my customer in in a vertically integrated fashion from a service-based business. So in essence, that they're married to us and we will receive additional work. Um, Basically, I don't want to call it low-hanging fruit, but we're maximizing that relationship. And in doing so, we're maximizing the revenue that we can generate from that customer. This way, it also makes it easier if my guys in my facility are also working with my truck drivers there is a certain understanding and communication that goes on and makes things easier done than my guys at my facility working with truck drivers from a common carrier who are not responsive, who are not um, responsible and show up whenever they want. Or the flip side, my trucking companies taking logistical loads from 3PLs and going to other different facilities and so forth like that and not knowing what to do and sitting around and being inefficient and things not going well. Got it. So I'm not, I can't 
drive a truck. I'm not a truck driver, but I'm going to switch gears a little bit on a couple of things. So I kind of, as they would say, buried the lead. We were supposed to record this podcast like 10 days ago, which happened to be the day that your first daughter was born. So, you know, congratulations to you on that. So I often ask people about, you know, how they get away from work or all that. Probably for you right now, that's an easy answer, but broader, you know, like what are what are some of your out of work interests, passions, and 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 one that whether it was you personally or the business, I saw sort of had to do with art, and kind of would love to know what that might be about. Sure. Um, so my parents were architects growing up, um, and I was okay. lucky enough to be in a home in which uh, there was a number of different you know pieces are all all over the house. I didn't really appreciate it too much when I was a kid. I thought huh. it was fun. It was cool. You know, in college, didn't really get too much involved in art as well. But when I graduated from college and I was looking for different things to do outside of going to the bar or going to restaurants or going to sporting events or concerts, you know, I really felt a kinship in, in going to different art shows and art events and gallery openings and really looking at a piece of art and basically having your own interpretation of what you felt about it versus what someone else felt about it. And I think it was a really good opportunity to rise in my horizons and, and bright, broaden my friendship groups. Uh, when I lived in New York, I was involved in a number of art, different organizations. Wow. And when I moved back to Michigan, you know, I'm 45 years old. And in uh, growing up here, you know, there was a big brain drain in Metro Detroit. And most sure. of my friends that I grew up with in high school all really left and live across the country. So when I moved back and I was looking to create new friendships and aspects, I one of the first things I joined was the Founders Junior Council of the Detroit Institute of Arts. Okay. And through that, I met a wonderful, great group of people from a variety of different backgrounds who all share the same love and art. And that's something that I still support to this day. And my wife was just nominated um, and accepted being the vice president of the organization. And actually, Thursday night, uh, I'm going to see Van Gogh, which is at the DIA, which yep. is probably one of the greatest Van Gogh uh, collections that's been assembled um, probably within our lifetime. That's fantastic. I mean, in a way, you're part of that group that helped save, you know, there's a lot of history with the DIA, including, you know, some through the city of Detroit's bankruptcy in that chapter. Oh, I contributed in, in calling people up and asking for um, donations, calling people up and making sure they voted in the millage. Um, we spent, a, I spent a lot of volunteer time and hours in doing that. Um, one thing I'd love to get involved in this conversation would be a lot of what I give back in Hamtramck. I don't know. If yeah, no, I would not. You know, uh, one of one of our longstanding ad agency clients is Kowalski, a business neighbor of yours, a generational family operation, also proud of their, you know, home operations. So, yeah, please talk about what you do and have done with, you know, base of operations in Hamtramck. I mean, explain for listeners around the region, world, whatever, Hamtramck and then and then go from there. Sure. Um, I moved back to New York in 2006 to get involved in my family's business. Our main business is our facility that's in Hamtramck. It was an old golf refinery. And when Golf and Chevron merged in the mid-80s, my family purchased it. Okay. I spent every day at this facility in Hamtramck really learning the business, really being out in the yard, seeing what's going on, taking part, understanding how we could cut costs. But I really looked at this wonderful, great, multicultural town that really was the first stop on the Immigrant Express that was a very large Polish town that has a great mm -hmm. history during Prohibition. And something where I used to play sports when I was in high school against the different teams in Hamtramck. Um, and I looked at, you know, us being a large company in Hamtramck 
that it was responsibility as being a private company to help out the city during a lot of the rough times in 2008 through 2012 to really get involved to help the individual citizens of the community to really give back where the actual city was not able to. Um, I ran recycling in the town for about 10 years because there was no door-to-door recycling. Um, I also am now on the Hamtramck Parks Conservancy Board, where basically we oversee the parks and stadiums and are rebuilding one of the five Negro League ballparks that are still left in this country. And during the time that I've been back, Hamtramck has really changed a lot. It is now the only city in the country that only ha- not only has a Muslim mayor, but an entire Muslim city council. And it went from being a 90% Polish town to now the Polish part is under 10%, and it's heavy Bengali, Yemenese, Syrian, Iraqi, Serbian. It is such a wonderful, crazy melting pot of society um, that is really see how everyone really works well together um, to really be a prosperous town for a lot of immigrants who are coming into this country from a lot of poor other countries across the world. And that's beautiful. Can you can you tell listeners a little bit about the Tri City Football Club in that? Is given your passion for sports meets business? Yeah. So so when I was in high school, um, I played at Keyworth Stadium, and I remember playing vivid memories of playing football in that stadium mm-hmm. when I was a kid. And it's really wonderful wonderful to see DCFC after they outgrew the fields at Cass Tech to really take their team to Keyworth Stadium put in million, millions of dollars in renovation for the stands, for the field, for different concession aspects, and just the excitement that's behind the actual fans and the games drawing between four to 7,000 people and shooting off color bombs and colorful language that's thrown out in different players and, and seeing the stands of a whole multicultural aspect of everyone that's involved and having a great time side by side. It's everything that you really want to see in sports and everything you want to see in a neighborhood community. And part of me being on the board, one of the things I want to make sure is being part of the Hamtramck Park Conservancy is the DCFC stays in Hamtramck. Yeah. Over the last five to seven years, they've continuously started raising from one division to the next division. And now we're one division below MLS. There was a game earlier this year where they played the Columbus Crew uh, during, with a Lamar Open Cup. And they beat the Columbus crew. It was an amazing, wonderful time. The owners of DCFC are really great people who really care about the community. And I hope that I can convince a developer to work with the DCFC to build a bigger stadium, a bigger footprint to offer the advantage. I hope so too. I, I, I love the experience of going. And it's like for a cultural moment, you know, in streaming content right now, the, you know, documentary on the, the club in Raksum. This is like our, I don't know if you've been able to watch any of that as a new parent, probably not, but. Uh, oh, on ESPN with Ryan Reynolds? Yes. The, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like got a little bit of the character of what's what's going on right down, right in our own neighborhood. So you're on Conservancy Board and you're on Art Board and you're running, you know, what are two businesses together, Sterling Businesses, your new parent. And so you got you to gotta then tell listeners you and your wife decide to buy kind of another venerable institution in the Detroit metro area or get involved deeply in raise ice cream. You just can you talk about how that came about and that adding that to your plate? Sure. Um, I've been on the Royal Oak Chamber of Commerce board for the last six years. Uh, my wife is a commercial real estate broker with Mid America. Um, she was in a meeting with a colleague who had mentioned 
that the neighborhood institution kind of gem of the community raised ice cream uh, was potentially going to close and they were looking to sell the building. And my wife mentioned to her colleague that she knew someone who would love to buy an ice cream company and would be very interested in speaking to the owners about what his vision would be to kind of take over the company and grow it back to what it used to be. Uh, so my wife and I met with the family uh, for over a year in which we kind of detailed what our vision would be to kind of restore the ice cream company to the glory it had in the late 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, and they really were very interested in kind of a lot of our ideas and the aspect of that it would continuously be family owned and operated, which was very important to them and keep within the Royal Oak community. I looked at it as a way of fulfilling kind of one of those childhood dreams I have of owning an ice cream company, huh. but also in working and owning companies and oil and gas and a real estate company I own as well, this would be, give me a great outlet for like my creative juices and my creative okay. knowledge. And that not only of that aspect, but like to work with my wife on something and to build something for our family where, you know, aspects of my other business in oil and gas, especially with the political nature of our company and electrification sure. of the automotive industry, this gave me a good way to diversify what we did as a family ongoing and could really protect ourselves if, you know, the reference fuels that we make that certify, you know, engines becomes a dying breed. I look at ice cream as one of those things that's kind of recession proof that, you know, even if people are deciding not to go out to restaurants and eat and eat meals and eat those at home, they'll look at dessert as kind of that treat they give themselves and would come out and, you know, come to the ice cream parlor and enjoy ice cream. But we also raise, sell into country clubs, restaurants, grocery stores, and dessert places as well. Yeah, I mean, as I we were saying, you know, pre of recording that, you know, having interview Joe Kinville from Guernsey, which is a family generational ice cream business, and Bassett that goes back to Philadelphia and college roots, you know, I, I didn't, you know, your core business. And then now I have another person who has that passion and those roots and may, you know, learning from taking and continuing a family operation uh, and understanding that, you know, that, that concept of a generational business and, and, you know, the, the, what it takes to keep that spirit alive. So we've covered a lot of interesting space. I ask everybody this kind of towards the end, which is, what has been the most fulfilling thing for you about being involved in, involved deeply in a generational business or now generational businesses? You know, I think that I've never asked my parents for like a pat on the back. I've never asked them to like hmm. acknowledgement about the job that I do. But I think that when I hear them talk to other people, friends and family and colleagues about the wonderful job that I'm doing about how that, you know, I, I've taken our family's business to the next level that I've assured my father and mother's legacy. Mm -hmm. It makes me feel that, you know, what I'm doing is, is worthwhile and that, you know, it is very important to me. And that's, um, you know, I could have, you know, lived in New York and had a nice life of working for like large corporations or maybe moved to another big city somewhere else and had a great, wonderful time, social and this and that. But like to, to really be that person who's now stepped up for our family and continue that legacy moving on 
and hoping that you know the next generation potentially will get involved, mm-hmm. whether it's with the oil and gas business or whether it's my newborn in, in 12 years scooping in the ice cream store um, to really have, to keep that family integrity intact and to make sure those blood, sweat, and tears that my parents spent years working on, you know, continue in a way that they're proud to be a part of and proud of something they started to see where it is today. That's great. I mean, Jason Edelson, I'm proud of you. I'm just, you know, getting to know you and but proud to, you know, have captured and chronicled a little bit of, of what, you know, your parents started with Sterling Oil and Sterling Services and what you've continued and what you're doing with these other community ventures and give back ventures and raise ice cream. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or that I forgot to touch on? No, I think you did an excellent job really hitting every, uh, you, every, you, everything you, it is. You know, you I think excellent job. I'm, I'm a type of person that doesn't, you know, one night a week, I like to maybe watch some crappy reality TV and get away from the world. But like, I like to just be in it. I like to like make an impact of what I'm doing to help change things, to help make things work. And like, you know, like the ice cream business that I've been in, you know, we closed July 5th and I've been literally working seven days a week, 10 to 15 hours a day um, since, you know, I had my kid about a week and a half ago. And it has been so fulfilling. Uh, just people come in with smiles on their face and seeing what we're doing and making immediately things turn around for the better. It just validates a, a lot of the life lessons and training I've had throughout my life from my family and other different great bosses I had, had in the past that really prepared me for the moments in my life that I've had in the last three months. Well, as you, as you both de-ice and ice cream up some people, I, uh, I wish you all the best and thank you for being part of Generation Excellence podcast. Thank you very much for having me today, Jamie. This has been a really great time to really share my family story with you. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to Sam Daly, Eric Head, and Joel Bienenfeld at SMZ for helping make Generation Excellence, well, excellent. Until next time, I'm Jamie Michelson.